Welcome to our sermon podcast here at City of Light Anglican Church. We are a new church in Aurora, Illinois, finding a new day in Jesus. We want to see the light of Jesus rise and shine in our hearts, in our homes, and in our neighborhoods. Thanks for joining us for today's message. We'll look together at this passage from Revelation. Would you turn there with me in your Bible? If you don't have a Bible, there are some throughout the seats throughout the room, and Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we're on page 1570 in those. It's also in your bulletin. And we've said over the last few weeks that the book of Revelation is showing us the most important things about our future. And it's using these visions of Jesus to do that, that he's the resurrected one who's defeated death, that he is the ruler who is loving and forgiving. Last week, as uh, Pastor Casey preached, we saw that Jesus is both the Lion of Judah who fights for us by being the Lamb who is slain for us. And in this vision of Jesus this morning, we not only get to see Jesus, but we get to see a picture of ourselves. It's a future snapshot of us. And so I made me kind of wonder what I would look like in the future, so I downloaded one of those apps that ages you. And so this is, this is me now, uh, a photo from Thursday, and then this is me when I'm 70. Now the crazy thing about this is if you've ever met my dad, I am my dad when I'm 70. <laughs> Except he's 76 in that photo and looks way better than I look at 70, right? Um, so I didn't ask her permission, but I did this for Bonnie as well. Oh, yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's Mother's Day. I would never do that. Come on. Um, thanks, Todd. Uh, so that's, uh, that's a little future snapshot. I preached on this passage last All Saints, and I said, this passage is our future family photo. It's who not only we are, uh, but it's who we will be in Jesus. And so this morning, I want to look at, at both that picture of us as the flock of Jesus, but also as Jesus as our good shepherd. It's Good Shepherd Sunday today, and both of those words, Jesus, uh, good shepherd, us as flock, those are metaphors, right? And the book of Revelation uses lots of metaphors, lots of images uh, to describe. You know, John is, is in heaven when he's writing this. He is seeing the Lord. How do you describe that? How do you convey something that incredible and majestic and beautiful? So he's all way, the way throughout this book going, it's like this, or it's as if this. He's using um, these metaphors. And it's to invite us to engage our imaginations. Remember I said it, uh, the imagination's not for the imaginary, it's not for something that's make-believe or untrue. It's so that we, in our life here on earth, can live in the reality of heaven. It's so that while we can't see Jesus, our good shepherd, in the flesh, we can still live as though he really is our good shepherd. It's so that we, can, we don't always understand the, the beauty and the multitude of the church, but we can live in this worth, uh, world through our imaginations in that reality. It's important to say that even though John throughout this book is using metaphor 
to describe Jesus and to describe heaven, that Jesus and heaven are not metaphorical. They are real. This is true. John actually encounters the Lord. He is actually there in heaven. It made me think of this book about heaven by the writer C.S. Lewis. It's called The Great Divorce, and it's this metaphorical story of someone going to heaven. And when, when they go in a bus, I think, and, and when the bus gets to heaven, um, I don't think that's how we really go to heaven, but anyway, when the bus gets to heaven, they realize that they're, they've all become very transparent, like they're kind of wispy or ghost-like. You can see through them. And then when they touch the grass and the stones and the trees and the, the, the water of heaven, it's too hard. It hurts them because it's so dense. And one of them says, wow, this world is more solid than the place we come from. So we often have this idea of heaven that, that seems less substantial than earth. But that's not the case. Heaven is dense. It's real. It's true. And we can't see it now. But Revelation and the Bible want to engage our imaginations so that we can live in the reality of heaven here on earth even when we can't see the reality of heaven. We so often live our lives as if we do not have a good shepherd. We so often understand our identity as if we were not part of the flock. And if you believe that you have a good shepherd, like Jesus taught this morning in the gospel, and, and that nothing and no one can take you out of his hand, out of his care, then maybe your prayer this morning is just, Jesus, make your good shepherding more real to me today. Jesus, make my place in your flock, the church, more real to me today. And if you don't know what you might believe about Jesus or heaven or what happens when you die, we're so glad you're here. Maybe this is just an invitation to imagine what it might be like if you were part of Jesus' flock. So I want to look first at the flock and then at the shepherd. The first time we get a glimpse of ourselves in Revelation of the church in heaven is in chapter 5 when there are these bowls of incense around the altar, which are pr the prayers of the saints. Chapter 5, verse 7. These are the prayers of the saints who are in heaven. They've already died. They're with the Lord. That's why we use incense sometimes on special days here to represent the prayer and the worship of the church. But a little bit later, um, we see the prayers of the saints from earth that are coming up from earth as incense into heaven. And then the Lord hears those and responds, and an angel goes and gets uh, hot coals from the altar and throws them down to earth. And the symbol here is that the prayers of the church on earth are heard in heaven by the Lord, that he takes action and things change on earth because of it. Isn't that amazing? And so we've got both of these pictures here the church in heaven and the church on earth. And that encouragement to us as the church still on earth seems to be why we get this Revelation 7 image of the church. 
John's been telling us about this scroll that has seven different seals on it, wax seals, and they're reading them one by one, and he gets to the sixth one, and they read the sixth one, and they stop, and he shows us this chapter seven picture of the people of God before they get to the seventh one. In the midst of all of the hardships and tribulation and judgments that's happening in those seals to the church on earth, John pauses and goes, but wait, remember, the church makes it. The church makes it through. The prayers of suffering of the church reach heaven, and heaven acts, and you're gonna make it. It's gonna be okay. For all of its sufferings and trials, all of the church's persecution, all of its doubt, all of its unfaithfulness, all of the failures of its leaders, at the end, it will be delivered by Jesus. The church will stand before the shepherd, and she will be bigger and more beautiful than we can imagine. And for all of us who lament the suffering and brokenness of our lives and of our churches, this is a beautiful picture to hang on to, isn't it? Some uh, call those saints that are around the altar in heaven the church triumphant. These are people in Jesus' flock who have died and who are now in heaven and who have been healed and who have experienced the victory of Jesus. And then some call the saints still on earth, us, the church militant, meaning we're still caught in this cosmic battle. We haven't seen the full victory of Jesus yet. And this is what our creed calls the communion of the saints. That when we come together and worship on Sunday morning, it's not just us here at City of Light Church. It's not just us here in all of the churches who are part of Jesus' flock in Aurora. It's not just our diocese. It's not even just all of the church around the world today who are worshiping Jesus. We join with that church triumphant in a real way, not an imaginary way, in a, a, a true way that when we come around this altar, as we say, we join with saints and angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, those 24 elders who represent the people of God and Israel and the church, those four crazy-looking creatures that represent all of creation, all of the angels that can't even be numbered, and all of the brothers and sisters in the church around the world today, but those who have passed away, we're all together and we're around the throne room of God. That's what happens this morning when we come and worship. That's what's really going on. And we can expand our imagination as we come this morning to know that we are gathered in the throne room of God. The church is so much bigger than we think. In fact, John says, it's a great multitude. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, there's a sense of, of completeness there. The same thing happens when it's talking about the people of Israel. There's, there's a completeness. It's, it's the idea that Jesus has not lost a single lamb from his flock. They are all here. They're robed in white, which means 
They've been healed and forgiven and washed and clothed in Jesus' goodness and righteousness. They're before the throne, which means that they've been invited into this privileged place of intimacy with their Father King as priests of God, as children of the Trinity. They're holding palm branches in their hands, which means that this is the end of a victory procession, one that started outside of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. We're seeing the final end of it. And so they sing, Jesus, you did it. You saved us. Yours is salvation. And they fall down and worship. The church is so much more beautiful than we think. Standing there before Jesus, healed, reconciled, forgiven. And this would have been a huge sigh of relief to all of those first century believers who are reading it. Uh, Bible writer Bruce Metzger says that the Christians reading it were a small minority group worshiping behind closed doors in the corners of their cities, while around them tens of thousands of people paid open homage to the traditional gods and to the images of the Roman emperor. But it turns out the Christians are not the misguided ones. They're joining their voices with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven to worship the true center of the cosmos. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like you're the weird one? We used to talk about um, people used to talk about America as a Christian nation, and a lot of uh, sociologists kind of name it as a post-Christian nation now. And uh, you know, for those who, uh, in that kind of time of calling it a Christian nation, and this is still true in some parts of our country today, people would just identify like, "Yeah, I'm American. I believe in God. I'm Christian," but it didn't necessarily mean they actually like believed the Bible or obeyed it or practiced it. The sociological word for that is nominal. So Christian in kind of name only, but not necessarily in belief or practice. Now that's not a uh, unique thing to the American uh, history or culture. There's um, other countries around the world that have similar kind of relationships with religion. Um, You know, we've got people here from a number of different countries and Talked to some Mexican friends on my block who are like, yeah, in parts of Mexico where we're from, like to be Mexican is to be Catholic. And for some, that's a very devout, personal relationship with God and the church. And for others, it's kind of in name only. It's nominal. Something always to remember whenever you read a poll that says Christians in America think this, right? Um, So there's this idea of like identity um, being sort of this broad, we're, we're all kind of believing mostly the same thing. Um, but for a lot of parts of the United States, for a lot of groups of people, for a lot of especially urban areas, that Christian identity has faded. And the church and the Bible and following Jesus has, has more and more become something that's outdated, something that's... Um, ignorant or, uh, you know, um, immature or uncool or even harmful. That's often the opinion that we hear. And that can feel lonely. That can feel embarrassing. 
It can feel confusing when we believe something different than most of the people around us, when our lives look so different than most of the people around us. And we have to get better at being the minority. We have to get better at understanding our identity with the Good Shepherd and with the flock of Jesus, even when other people around us don't. And for the church throughout the ages, for, for whom that's been the normal experience, the way to be the minority on earth is to enlarge our imagination and fill our imagination with the multitude in heaven. This is our flock. This is who we are. This image of the church stand before Jesus. How do we enter this family, this flock photo? Um, they tell us, one of the elders tells us in verse 14, who are they? These are the ones who've come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. That's a paradox, right? When we get blood on a piece of clothing, I was out gardening yesterday, got some blood on my, on my pants with a scrape. That stains your clothing, right? It doesn't clean it, it causes a stain, but the paradox of Jesus' blood is this. It doesn't cause a stain, it removes the stain, right? It cleanses us, it forgives us, it makes us white, and you can enter into the flock of Jesus and receive Jesus as your good shepherd when you receive his sacrifice on the cross for you. Let's look at the shepherd now for a minute. In verse 17, we see another paradox. You know, last week we saw that the the, the line of Judah was the lamb who was slain. This week in verse 17, we see that the lamb at the center of the throne will be the shepherd. The lamb is slain so that the lamb can be the shepherd of the lambs. So I want to talk about two types of shepherds. I want to talk about pastor shepherds and parent shepherds. Pastor shepherds and parent shepherds. Now, the word pastor just means shepherd, so I get that's kind of redundant, but they do alliterate, so we're going with it. And one of my favorite descriptions of, of pastors in the church comes from 1 Peter 5. It's a, a passage that I've been meditating on many, many times over the difficulties of the last couple of years. So the Apostle Peter says to the pastors among you, be shepherds. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. A couple thoughts on that passage. The first one is, God gives churches to the care of pastors. Flocks are meant to have shepherds. That's God's design. The church needs her pastors, but she needs a certain type of pastor, not someone who's coerced to do it, and not someone who's doing it for their own gain, right? Not someone who's doing it because they are getting something out of it. The motivation's really important there not to get famous or to have influence or to write books, but to serve and to sacrifice. 
And not to serve in some like global celebrity way, but to serve the sheep entrusted to you, your local flock. We'd be a lot healthier as a church if pastors worried a little bit less about global platforms and a little bit more about their local sheep. Because churches need shepherds, not celebrities, right? Right? And there are false shepherds who out of their brokenness or out of their own um, search for what they need are not caring for the flock, but they're in it for what they get out of it. And in John 10, that part, we read part of that passage in the gospel today, Jesus calls these shepherds hired hands. He says they're there because they're getting paid to be there, but they don't know their sheep. The sheep don't hear their voice, and they don't stay when the hard things come. When there's a thief or when there's a wolf, the hired hands are out of there. They're not getting paid enough for that kind of hazard. But who is it that stays and lays down their life for the sheep? Jesus does. A shepherd doesn't lord it over like the king of their own kingdom, but they're a humble servant of Jesus as the chief shepherd. And they're an example to the flock of what? We studied this all Lent. Jesus, have this mind in you which is in Jesus who humbled himself, became a servant slave, who became obedient unto death. Jesus wants his church to be humble, so he gives it humble shepherds as an example of Jesus' own humility. I'm so grateful that um, I had parents who were good, humble shepherds for me. They we're not perfect. They're broken and sinful, just like I as a parent am broken and sinful, but they led me to Jesus, the good shepherd. And I'm so grateful that when I sort of left their flock uh, on a daily basis and went to college, that Jesus brought me to good, trustworthy shepherds at Church of the Resurrection. And Bishop Stewart and Catherine Ruck, our dear bishop and, and, and bishop's wife, have been trustworthy shepherds to me and Bonnie and our kids for 18 years. And I've seen them not lord it over us, not do it for their own gain, but I've seen them be like Jesus and humbly serve and sacrifice. And as Jesus entrusted this flock to Bonnie and I, and we needed shepherding, and we would go to Stuart and still go to Stuart and Catherine, they have taught us and showed us how again and again to learn how to lay down our lives, publicly sometimes, mostly privately. I'm so grateful for their good, trustworthy shepherding. Because the qualifications uh, for a shepherd of the flock of Jesus are not a degree, though study is good, it's not charisma or success. You earn a shepherd's staff by giving your life for the sheep. And if you've ever looked around at the flock of Jesus and said, I love these brothers and sisters, and I would give myself up for them, then you've got the heart of Jesus for his flock. And maybe you're a shepherd. Those are pastor shepherds. I also want to talk about parent shepherds. There are dad shepherds and aunt and uncle shepherds and grand shepherds and church shepherds. And downstairs, we've got six or eight city kids shepherds shepherding our children. But it's Mother's Day, and Mother's Day never happens on 
Good Shepherd Sunday. I've never seen it happen before. And so I want to talk this morning a little bit as we close about Mama Shepherds. I thought of three passages as I read this, um, verses uh, 15 through 17 of Revelation, which is a fulfillment of all of this prophetic um, Old Testament teaching about God as shepherd. Isaiah 40 says that God takes Israel and holds her close to his heart and carries her like a shepherd. Psalm 23, which often gets read on Good Shepherd Sunday, says that he's a shepherd who provides everything we need. But the passage I really thought about today for Mother's Day Good Shepherd Sunday was Luke 13, where on Palm Sunday, Jesus stands outside the city of Jerusalem, and before he processes in, he starts to weep. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. This is a, a part of Jesus' shepherding that is the shepherding of a mother, a mother's shepherd heart, that he would be to us like a mom who gathers us in close and takes care of all of our needs. The shepherding of moms is a uniquely beautiful reflection of Jesus and his good shepherding. Not all of us have experienced a biological mom who cares for us like that. Maybe there's other women in your life who've provided that for you. Maybe you've had to or need to receive some of that from our mother church or directly from Jesus and his heart to care for you like a mother. But the love of a mom is primal, it's first, it's foundational in so many ways. It's the first love any of us receive um, other than the Lord's. We're meant to know that deep down in our being, we're meant to know that our mother gave herself for us, made a safe home for us in her body, cried and endured pain to bring us to life fed us from her own self, that we were deeply wanted and intimately known, and that she delights in us. Because of brokenness and our sinful world, we don't always receive all of that from our moms, and moms aren't always able to give all of that. And honestly, so much of our anxieties as adults come from places where we just don't know that we're fully safe and known and loved and delighted in. But that's the kind of love Jesus wants to give to us when he gathers us up in his arms like a mom. Read verse 15 through 17 with me. He will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger or thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, if that's not the work of a mom, shepherd, I don't know what it is. You've got kids who are hungry, kids who are thirsty, kids who are too hot, kids who are crying. 
too hot crying in the, the shelters a mess. Mom and dad are meant to partner in all of those things, but mom and dad's carry those things very differently. And I know how there are moments where there's resentment and exhaustion and frustration. And, um, you know, there are times when Bonnie, just after the kids are in bed, needs some space. She needs some, some time, or we'll go out on a date after a week, and she'll just need to not think about the kids for a minute. But on all but the very hardest days, there's some point in the end of our date or the end of our evening where she says, I've just got to tell you about this thing the kids did. And she just delights in them. And that's the shepherding of Jesus. That's the kind of love he wants to gather us in with. Is Jesus delights in us. He wants us and he longs for us and he went through pain and death to bring us life and he made a place in his body, the church, for us and he feeds us from himself and he provides for us but never resents being our shepherd, never is frustrated with us, never is ready to give up, never is difficult in the relationship. It's, it's Jesus is the one who gave his life for us so he could be our shepherd. That's why he was the lamb who was slain, so he could be the shepherd of the lambs, so he could spend his life giving to us and gathering us up into his arms. If you have a desire to be a parent and that hasn't happened yet, I want you to feel close to Jesus in this passage who longs to parent every single person and is waiting for that to happen because his plan is to spend forever shepherding us. His plan and desire, the, the goal he is moving forward in history is to spend eternity gathering us into his arms. <laughs> Praise the Lord. To be the shepherd that leads us to green pastures, besides still waters, who pours our cups full until it runs over, who sets a feast before us, who makes sure for all eternity that goodness and mercy will follow us. Jesus' idea of heaven is being your shepherd. Jesus' idea of heaven is being our shepherd. Won't you let him this morning? Won't you let him be that shepherd and won't you become part of his flock? He is the good shepherd now. We are his flock now and one day we will be with him and he will gather us up in his arms and hold us close to his heart forever. Hallelujah. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from City of Light Anglican Church. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at cityoflightanglican.org. 
And now, may the light of Jesus scatter the darkness from before your path.